This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Andersons, Jarrell Sweet Tooth, and the author is E. Diane Cook. And Diane joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Diane. Hello, and good morning. Well, this is a cute book, but at the same time, a very, very serious and strong message about children's obesity, the problem that we're having in America. Let me read a couple things that you've written. You say, my book is about a little boy who only wants to eat sweets, but realizes through a strange dream that you can get too much of a good thing. I think we all can identify with that. <laughs> we've, all, yes. we've all eaten too many sweets before as children and as adults. And you also say that Jarrell's Sweet Tooth encourages children to develop skills for making positive choices. Jarrell learns from his dream and makes a better choice for what he should eat. So a lot of great uh, illustrations, uh, big letters for children. Uh, you can, the words just stand out. The illustrations stand out. The message is obviously very, very needed, isn't it? Oh, yes, definitely, definitely. I know that as a mother firsthand, sometimes it's difficult to balance what children see out there. You know how they say all that glitters is not gold? They see a lot of good, uh, sweet-looking items, candies and cakes and, and so forth. And when you try to give them something that has a little bit of balance, it is a challenge. So I've had that same challenge myself. Well, it is, especially where treats today can be a, a daily and many times a day treat, uh, just kind of a habit, right? Oh, yes, definitely. I myself have a, a rather large sweet tooth, which I have to control on a daily basis. So how did you come up with this family? Tell us about the Andersons. The Andersons is actually contrived from my mother's maiden name. Her maiden name was Anderson, S-O-N. And I just decided to put a different spin on it and make it Anderson's, um, the sun being energy, life force, that kind of uh, scenario. This family was one that I created some years ago. I'm a visual artist, and I did cartooning. I do painting, that kind of thing. And I created this family as just another way of artistic expression. It was featured in one of our community newspapers for a few uh, segments, and then at some point the, the paper no longer existed, but I didn't get rid of the family. I kind of kept them, tucked them away, and I revived them. As an artist, we never throw anything away. So that's basically where the family came from. You must have done the illustrations. Yes, I did. I created it, and it's loosely based on my family. I'm a member of a family with six children, and we don't have the same makeup as the family does. The family has a set of twins. My brother is the only son among five sisters. We did have several family pets, dogs, cats. I brought every stray home I could find, 
but they gave me the core and the nucleus how to build on the family. So a lot of the names that are in the book, actually all of the names that are in the book, come from my family, my nieces, my nephews, my son, that kind of thing. But it was a real joy to incorporate family in the creation of this because I do believe in uh, family as well. Well, tell us about Jarrell. Jarrell. Jarrell is one of the twins. He has a twin sister, Keturah. He's eight years old. He's very adventurous, but he also has this sweet tooth. And um, as the book goes, he constantly wanted his mom to give him cakes and cupcakes and pie and ice cream and cookies as opposed to eating, you know, the healthy vegetables and fruits that we normally need. And at one point, he decides to become very defiant and tell mom that he doesn't want to eat and he refuses to eat. And then that's when the story takes off. But he's a very adventurous little boy. He's a good little boy, but he thinks he has a mind of his own. And then eventually he does get a chance to use his cognitive thinking and realize what's important for you. Well, the message is very clear. It's very direct. It's simple for children. What would be the age group? I would believe somewhere between four and seven. I started reading it to my niece when she was roughly three going on four, and whenever she'd come over, she'd always want to read it. And I also taught her the song, and she really took to the song. What I've also done was set it up so that the older children can read it to the younger children. A lot of the schools that I've gone to, they have third and fourth graders reading to the first and second graders, and they've been doing that. But I also encourage women who are expecting to read it to their unborn children while we were in their, their stomach, which is what I did with my son. He actually became a very good reader and an avid reader. Maybe not because of that, but I'm sure it had a lot to do with it. So it's pretty much for all ages, but for the learning purposes, I would say between four and three, four to seven. And you've brought up the song. Uh, the title of the song is Veggies and Fruits. Yes. <laughs> what I wanted to do was to find a learning tool, and music is a very good learning tool. As well as being a visual artist, I'm also a singer. So part of my plan was to incorporate the things that I'm passionate about, which would be art, music, and then working with young people. And well, so I came up with the idea for the song. I developed the words. I did a little research to find out which foods had which vitamins. So in the song, I use what I call like the ABCs of vitamins. And I talk about which foods have vitamin A, vitamin B, and vitamin C. So that's, that's sort of like the hook of the catchy lyrics, but also helping with the learning tool so that they understand that there's a message as well as a melody. Well, we're going to play a little of that right now to give everybody a feel for this, this cute little song with a great big message. Good. Thank you.
Well, music, as you say, is a great way to teach. Great way to teach. Oh, definitely. Uh, it's always been a part of my life, and it also introduced a lot of life's lessons to me. So it was a natural choice for me to use um, music to help bring the message forth to, especially for the younger children, because they have a short attention span when it comes to things that they don't connect with right away. And most children re- uh, will connect with something from the arts. Well, as you say, as parents and adults, we need numerous learning tools to protect and enhance our children's health and welfare. It's a it's a big problem, uh, pardon the pun. I mean, obesity is a very, very uh, challenging and serious problem. Oh, definitely. One of the things that I wanted to stress for people, I know uh, there are several um, television specials and there's a lot in the media about ways to combat obesity. What I think is important is for maybe people to focus on how important it is to be healthy. And I think if you work on being healthy first, everything else will follow. I have also changed the way I eat. I do, I've always enjoyed exercise, but I do more exercise now. I'm more conscientious about how I eat, what I eat, what foods I put together, and I try to be a good role model for anyone who I come in contact with. Not so much to browbeat them with the idea, but just to, you know, live by the example. So when I'm with my niece, you know, we'll try to make healthy eating choices, and, you know, she's really good at eating her vegetables and fruits. Um, So the idea is to understand how beneficial it is to be healthy first, and then everything else should follow. So Jarrell has a dream which changes his life. Yes, it's a somewhat of a reoccurring dream, which is the mystery behind it, and it really um, kind of takes the little people by surprise. Uh, a couple of classes where I went and uh, presented the book, and we had a little guessing game to see if they could guess whether what was going on was part of the dream or was it the actual event. Um, he gets a chance to have what he thinks he wants, you know, and sometimes you have to be careful what you wish for because you just might get it. So he does have a chance to uh, have all the sweets that he's ever wanted in front of him, and over a period of time he realizes maybe not such a good idea all at, you know, all, all at once. So that's kind of where the mystery comes in the book, and um, at some point he realizes that he needs to kind of balance what he's doing a little better. And, you know, maybe Mom did know what she was talking about. So Jarrell's Sweet Tooth is the first in a series of books. Yes. uh, Once I started writing, I've always enjoyed writing, but never actually thought about being an author till recently, Till you know, my friend uh, made the suggestion. One of the things that I've done, once I sat down, I actually wrote several stories to be used um, after the Jarrell Sweet Tooth story has pretty much reached an audience that can understand it and appreciate it, then there will be another one based on another family member and their situation. I do have one ready now about his twin sister and an experience that she's going to have. Also, again, a fun activity, but a learning tool as well. And the thing that I like a lot is color, especially being a visual artist. So I, try to, I want to try to keep all of the books very colorful uh, very eye-catching. So each uh, child or each family member, I guess, will have a book 
focused on that person? Yes. Uh, I'll probably start introducing other characters as I go along. As a matter of fact, I already have a couple of like friends or neighbors incorporated in some of the other storylines. And it's interesting because uh, extended family members are hinting that maybe their name might be good for a particular character in the book, which is, which is interesting because that's pretty much what I had in mind is to uh, bring other characters in each story. But the bottom line would be a learning experience and the possibility of another song accompanying the next book. There will always be something that's going to be an additional learning tool in each book. So it may be a song, it may be uh, an activity, an interactive activity, but there will be something else in each book. So the key word that you're trying to teach, treats are great, but we must have, and the word is balance. Yes, balance, without a doubt. Uh, I think, um, as I said, you can have too much of a good thing, so you need to look at your your particular makeup as well. Maybe what I can take in is not what someone else can take in. So it's good to know your body. And when you're, when you're young, you'll need help, which is where the parents and the adults in each child's life play an important part, whether it be aunts, uncles, friends, neighbors, whoever is influencing the child in their, in their choices. You need to make sure that you look at what that particular child needs and try to help them move into the direction that's best for them. How do we get your book, Diane? It is on Amazon.com. I have copies as well. They can reach me. I have a website, uh, com, and that's spelled D-I-J-A-R-O-D-E-S-I-G-N-S. Um, I have a my book is on my website along with other things that I'm doing now. We're reconstructing my website, so the book, will, the book song will be available for download. We did a video with my church, uh, Children's Choir Church, They're Adorable. We're trying to incorporate that now into my website, so hopefully that will be done this month. Now, readers can also purchase the CD. How does that work? I'm packaging the book and the CD to be sold together if you purchase it through me. If you get it through uh, Amazon or online, I'd be more than happy to send you the CD to go with the book. But if you're interested in maybe viewing the children singing the song, you, can, you should, should be able to download the video um, at your leisure. But I'm actually selling a CD of them singing the song with the book. So even if you purchase it online, you can still um, contact me and I will send you the the audio. And what's the best way to contact you? You can either uh, send it to my email address, which is designs at yahoo.com, and Dejaro is spelled D-E, I'm sorry, D-I-J-A-R-O, D-E-S-I-G-N-S, Dejaro Designs. The name Dejaro is actually a combination of uh, family member names, Diane, Javon, and my daughter, Rhonda. Well, so good to have you with us, Diane, on Author Talk. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for this opportunity. That was E. Diane Cook. She is the author of her book, her children's book called The Andersons, Jarrell's Sweet Tooth. You're listening to Author Talk. 
We'll be back right after these messages. Hey, you living the dream like Nina and Cindy? Sweet dreams are made of the Were you shocked by the Chuck E. Cheese calamities, diaper dilemmas, and major mom minivan mishaps? Then get ready to share it with Living the Dream Moms with Nina Fry and Cindy Schmitzer, Thursday mornings at 10, 9 a.m. Central on Toginet. And as Nina and Cindy say, if you're thinking it, we're saying it. It's your chance to discuss, share, and learn from two moms who have been there, done that, and yes, they have the t-shirts. And they're for sale at ltdchix.com. Living the Dream Moms is all about all things moms have to deal with daily. Nina and Cindy are two ordinary frazzled moms who admit when they need help and do their best to research and discuss topics that are not always talked about. Living the Dream Moms are just two real women who are discussing the trials and tribulations and triumphs of everyday mom lives. You are not alone. It's Living the Dream Moms with Nina Fry and Cindy Schmitzer. Thursday mornings at 10 Eastern, 9 a.m. Central on toginet.com. What's your story? Are you living it? Well, you could be. It's What's Your Story with Hillary Bilbrey. Friday mornings at 10 Eastern, 9 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Her passion is helping others discover, create, and live their personal brands. Yep, you heard me. You have a brand. No different than Coke, Pepsi, or Nike. You are a walking, talking, living, breathing brand. You're not a logo. You're not a tagline. The choices you make become the path you take. This is your brand. Now, live your story. Your brand is not just what you say it is. It's also what others say it is. So what are you communicating? And how can you create an authentic brand? We'll take on these challenges with What's Your Story? Every week, Hillary will feature teens, moms, and organizations that are learning and living their story. Now, her passion is to help others discover, create, and live their personal brands. To find out more, go to inspiredbyfamily.com. It's What's Your Story with Hillary Bilbrey. Friday mornings at 10 Eastern, 9 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, My Vladislaus Dracula. And the author is Teresa Jones. And Teresa joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Teresa. How are you? Well, when I think about Dracula, <laughs> I'm sorry. I kind of, uh, you know, there's a chill that goes up my spine. <laughs> Uh, well, that's what most people think. Exactly, yeah. exactly. But uh, according to your book, and you are a first-hand researcher, much, much different. And so that's what we're going to talk about, the real Dracula, right? Right, the 15th century Romanian prince, yes. Why did you write this book? What motivated you to want to know so much, something that, you know, uh, information that, Nobody probably knows about Dracula. Um, that's correct. But when you asked me about motivation, I, I really didn't need any because I, I have researched so many things and about his real life that it was so much more interesting than any book or any movie could have come up with. I mean, this man was completely amazing from his imprisonment to, as a child and then as an adult and people forging documents to, to arrest him to the Pope actually giving money to have people help him in crusades and people in Europe celebrating his name. I mean, this man was unbelievable, the amount of, of things that he had gone through to save his country. And the story actually took on its, it, its own self when I read so many documents. So I hope 
you know, when you say motivation, I didn't really need any because my imagine took off from everything that this man had done. And so I hope it gives, you know, readers, you know, something that they have never heard of before, which I know that more than likely they will enjoy. <laughs> well, this is fiction based on fact. Uh, yes. I want to just read something that you've written in introducing your book. You say, Amelia Justine Carey. Amelia. Now, she's, yes. the, she's the main character, Amelia Justine Carey, is that right? Yes. And she's... Yes, there are reasons why I chose names, and a lot of my friends will see that, but um, Justine was a popular name also in Europe, and so I, I chose those certain names in the book to represent, of course, you know, uh, the, the time of the century of Europe. And, and to me, Justine Carey was, you know, she was one of the strongest characters. Well, she wasn't strong at first because as you first get to know her, you think she's timid, you think she's, you know, shy, but, but as you read throughout the book, you see, you see why she changes, and, and you get to understand her more, and her relation to the other characters becomes more apparent as you go throughout the book, and so, <clears throat> um, how she, you know, um, she's, I had to find a character who was going to be misunderstood as much as Vlad was throughout his life. And so when I, when I started her character, I, could, I, I tried to figure out what could one person's job occupation be who liked, who liked to watch vamp- or Dracula movies or was interested in Dracula, and how could she be misunderstood? So I, I portrayed her as a at first starting out as a phlebotanist, obviously someone who withdraws people's blood for a lab test. So what could be mis- more misunderstood than that? <laughs> <laughs> like in Dracula. <laughs> and you were so, so uh, curious that you even went to Romania. Yes, I went I had to. It was it was more of a of something inside me that said, Oh my gosh, how is it that people don't know the real story of this man? I mean, do they really believe all this internet crap, you know, that they see? Do they say that he's a blood drinker? There was a, a poem by M- Michael Bohem. He was a mind singer. He, he traveled to different places, and he was fed by the stories that he gave. So if he gave really good stories, he would get to stay in these places, these luxurious palaces, for days. So the better off his stories were, the better off that he that, you know, that he would be fed and be taken care of. So what did he do? Obviously, he had to, you know, get some, you know, good ideas flowing. So he used Vlad Dracula because of all the stories that were made up about him. He just took them and ran with them. And so when he wrote this poem, and it says specifically in this poem because I have translated it, and it does not say anything about Vlad drinking blood. It said they used to dip dip their bread their bread in the blood or their hands. You see, the way you can translate it, when you translate stuff, it could mean 50,000 things to 50,000 people. And so, but what the main translation meant was that they dipped their hands in the blood of their enemies so that they could cleanse them of all, you know, of everything that they had done wrong and that they could, you know, be in peace. And so it was a power kind of a play. And so he never, never dipped the bread in the blood and slurped it down. And that was, that was never stated in any document that I have ever read or ever seen over in Romania. 
even that poem that they supposedly got this information from. And the poem, like I said, said that they dipped their hands in the blood. Now, how they got that he, you know, started drinking blood from the vat is, is where the story goes into the vampire aspect. And so that is where I went into the other direction and said, see, this is the truth. This is not the made of, and this is how they got everything screwed up. And, the, and those things were mostly written anyways by the German merchants who hated Vlad because Vlad uh, wanted to have them treat his people fair. Now, Hungary was very hungry. Sorry, <laughs> that was not meant to, meant to be like that. But, but, you know, Hungary was very... Was very, it was in need of money because of King Matthias and, and what had happened, and that's another story. But because the merchants would always come into Wallachia and, and take a lot of Wallachia's uh, merchandise and then not give them a fair market value, well, Vlad saw that. And so he said, you will, when you come to my country, you will be fair. Well, what happened with that is after he started you know, going through his... his you know, borders and making sure that all these people were being fair, they weren't getting a lot of money. And so they needed to start cheating people and doing a lot of other things. And Vlad saw that. And so one of the main concerns of why he hit Brasov so hard was because the fact that, um, you know, he cheated the customers and he cheated his customers and they were also harboring Vlad's enemies and portraying them as princes of Wallachia when he was already prince. And so, you know, it's kind of mocking him. They also, you know, would, when they harbored his enemies, they would say, oh, you know, these are, this is going to be the new prince and you better watch out. And so he's like, no, I'm take, I'm, I'll take care of that right now. The main reason that he did go after the Brasov, it, Brasov was because of the merchants and the harboring of his enemies. Now, whoever got in the way, got in the way. You know, it wasn't like he went there to kill everybody. You know, he went there to, to, to have a point. And even the king of Hungary had wrote a letter to Brasov stating that you better not be cheating him anymore because he will retaliate and come after you. Now, even if their own king told them, you know, you better stop what you're doing, he's going to come after you. Well, if they ignored him, then they were, they were on their own. And even the king said, you're on your own. And so when Vlad came and, you know, destroyed, you know, uh, their, their merchandise, he had a right to do it. But he had no time to sit out front and set out a nice table and, you know, and chairs and have a meal. You know, he, if he was on a mission, there was no way he could also impale 30,000 people. When it was told over there, it was only 400, a maximum of 40 to 400. You know, it, it, it kind of varies because you, you, you have no idea how many. So there he couldn't have been 30,000. So he did kill his enemies that way? Um, well, he didn't learn it. He did not uh, learn, learn this from... from uh, the Turks. He supposedly learned this from the Germans. Everybody says that he learned it from the Turks when he was imprisoned. It is a possibility, but nobody knows for sure. You know, but what the German merchants used to do with people who stole from them, this is ironic too, um, the German merchants impaled the people who stole from them, and they would set them outside their gates. So this is what Vlad did. He said, you know, you impale your people this way for stealing. I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to show you respect. <laughs> I know. Show respect by impaling your people from stealing from mine. 
you see. So that's and why so, he was a great protector of his people. That's why he was called a hero among his people. Oh, yes, yes, that's why he was a hero, because uh, the merchants loved his own merchants loved him, and because of the fact that he had so many battles against the Turks to get them out of his country. Now, what the Turks did, uh, what the Sultan did, was he wanted 500 boys taken from all villages in Wallachia to be given to the Sultan. That is, that was the Sultan wanted as a tribute to not you know, go to war with Wallachia, not to come through them. You know, Vlad was the only one who who stood up and said, no, you will not take my people and I will not give you any more money. We need this as a, as a city to continue to prosper. And so, you know, um, when he said that, you know, and this was about the same time as the Pope, the Pope had, uh, you know, sent out word, we, we need, you know, more people to come to the aid and to to help us in protecting our country from Turkish invasion, from this Ottoman Empire spreading. Because this was after the fall of Constantinople, you know, where nobody thought that this was this city was going to fall. But of course the Sultan made it fall. And so everybody was kind of scared and timid of the Sultan for doing that. Well here Vlad Dracula, you know, years later this was years later, you know, because fall of Con- Constantinople was like in May of fifty three. Of 1453. Well, Vlad didn't take the reigns of a second reign until, you know, 56. And so um, in 56, when he took over, he had so much to do in his country that, I mean, you know, there were hardly any laws because princes would come and go. And so with, with that, um, he knew that the boyers of the country were only in it for themselves. And the boyers meaning the, the, the landowners who had all the money. There were so many things going on with this man in six years that it, it was phenomenal. I mean, he, he had the Ottoman Empire coming after him that wanted 500 boys every year from different villages. And that would take from his army and just, you know, make the armies of the Ottoman Empire bigger. Sure. And then they sure. also wanted money. And so, you know, then he had the German merchants, you know, to deal with, stealing from his merchants, and obviously that was not making his country any fuller, so he had to deal with that. Then he had his own country running rampant with beggars and thieves, and, and of course there are many, you know, atrocities that he was said to have committed with those things by burning all the sick and the poor. Well, we happen to know for a fact that the plague was running, you know, through through Europe, all over the place. And if he saw that, the only way to get rid of the plague, you have to burn the body. Right. And so, you know what I mean? I know that sounds like, oh my gosh. No, that was the way they did it back then, right. (laughs) So his enemies enemies created this bloodthirsty vampire image. Well, they didn't commit, they did not, they didn't do the vampire image. That was Bram Stoker. Because Bram Stoker is the one who came along and used only tidbits of information of Vlad's life to to suggest he was a vampire. Like I said, that Michael Bohink poem that nowhere states that he was a blood drinker. It said he dipped his hands in it. Not any piece of bread and slurped it out, nothing like that. And so when when people made up stories about these some of some of these historical documents they're using aren't historical, they're made up, they were made up by the German merchants, like the Rothel letters. If you've ever heard of the Rothel letters, um, they, were, um, they were three letters supposedly written by Vlad Dracula that, were, um, that condemned him to the atrocities and the crimes. 
um, that he was said to have committed, but he did not write them. They were forged. They were they were not they were not proven to be forged. They were proved to be forged by a German um, monk from the church in Brasov. And so, um, what the what the problem with that is is that many people, if you read over so many internet interviews and and you read in every single book, at some particular point they say. These documents were mainly spread to tarnish Vlad Dracula's reputation. And then you have a paragraph later, they're using it as historical evidence. And I'm like, what? You just told us in a paragraph ago that they were used as, you know, propaganda. How can you use anything that's, you know, like propaganda to to use as a historical evidence. I mean, you know, I just don't understand how they could do that, especially the Rothel letters that were proved to be forgeries from a German monk, you know, in the Brasov Church. And then some of these people still use those documents to condemn him, to condemn Vlad to these atrocities. And so I would, I just, you know, it's somehow that you even get on the Internet and they say, you know, at some point in time that, at some point in their inner, you know, in their in their documents, they say, you know, these documents were written to degrade him and put him in jail, and then you're using them. Well, why are you using them? I I really believe that if he would have had a fair trial now, he would have been a free man. I mean, there would be no way that they could have used any of the, this information because the Rothel letters were proved to be forgeries. All of these atrocities that he committed were at the time were validated by by the time of the, the by the century. I mean, even the Spanish Inquisition was going on. Oh my gosh, if you've ever heard anything about that, there was nothing compared to what he did. You well, know, Teresa, uh, he, t- Teresa, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you just want to make sure everyone understands that this is not an encyclopedia. This is an actual f- I know. fictional <laughs> novel. That it really is, and it sounds like Amelia is like you in a quest for truth about. Dracula. That's what it sounds like to me. <laughs> I, I, I have been told that. <laughs> but, 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 you know, you have to get into your books. Right. If you, don't, if you do not put yourself there, it's not readable. Nobody wants to read something. He went here, she went there, no. they did this. You have to get some emotion going into there. And so what I did was I tried to put myself there. What would she do? How would she react? How would he react? Who's talking in the situation? And so, you know, I I did incorpor- I, I did try to bring a little bit more of life into it, um, as in, uh, you know, if you were right there, and that's what you wanted to do. And there's there's a lot of information about why the book is purple. Uh, well, not a lot, but I mean, it's it's a couple of places you'll you'll have a little bit of, of hints throughout the book, and how he got the star on his on his um, famous hat, the famous portrait. Even right. the famous portrait of him has a story behind it. I mean, this and uh, every little step that you go throughout his life, from his death, even uh, the mysteries of of how he actually died. I tried to, you know, I got the best information I could and used what I had available to give an accurate description of how he actually died. And where he would be truly buried. Well, Teresa, we need to uh, wrap this up. We really appreciate it. It's fascinating. My goodness, there's so much here. And everyone will really enjoy this fictional approach to discovering the real Dracula. And tell us how to get your book. 
Well, it can be found um, on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, Borders.com. Um, I got it in an e-book, so it's in hard and soft cover, and um, also on Author House, definitely. And so um, I've got it in some local stores around here, and I'm hoping to get it um, into, uh, you know, the brick-and-mortar places pretty soon. I've been working on that. So um, I, I, I do have a couple of other books that are, that are out there in, in you know, some brick-and-mortar uh, establishments. And so I, ha- I also have a, um, I'm sorry, I also have a contest going. This is going to be airing on Saturday, right? Right. Saturday. Uh, okay, I have a contest that, that's still going until the 31st of May. And someone, some lucky person who answers all seven questions correct that I have, you know, thrown out there over the Internet through the last 30 days, um, they can get it, they can have a chance at a free copy. I'm going to sign it and I'll send it off to them if they, if they follow all the rules on my website. And, and what is your website? Um, the, uh, well, they have to go to um, Twitter first. See, it's kind of a game. You go to Twitter first, and then you go to MySpace. But on Twitter, it's Teresa's Escape on Twitter. And then from there, they have a, a link that they can go to my blog on MySpace that they can find the question. And then when they answer the question, at the end of the – when they get all seven questions answered, then they go, can go to my Vladislav Dracula at yahoo.com. And they can submit all seven answers, or they can write me and and tell me what they think about the book. Well, Teresa, we want to thank you for being on Author Talk. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you very much. That was Teresa Jones. She is the author of her book, My Vladislaus Dracula. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. People think I've made it. I'm popular. I seem happy all the time. I have great clothes and I'm involved in everything. But I have questions, doubts, and fears, just like every other teenager. That's why I'm glad for Teen Talk Radio, where it's all about choices. Join us for Teen Talk Radio with Nicole O'Dell, Thursday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. The choices we have to make that can alter the course of our lives. Life is too much pressure if we try to go it alone. I tune in to Teen Talk Radio with Nicole O'Dell every week to get reminded that I'm not alone. Nicole O'Dell is an expert on what happens in the lives of teenagers. Join her as she deals with topics like peer pressure, purity, drugs, alcohol, and many other things that might come up along the way. She writes books and speaks to people all over the place, but she says her favorite moments are when she can pull up a chair and chat with teens about what's important to us. For more information on Nicole and her books, go to NicoleO'Dell.com. Then join us for Teen Talk Radio with Nicole O'Dell, Thursday nights at 10, 9 central on Toginet.com. Teen Talk Radio, where it's all about choices. The American Rock and Roll Countdown with Alex Price. So where were you in the 1970s? Well, this Saturday morning, we're going to flash back to the 70s as we count down the classic hits with the American Rock and Roll Countdown. You'll hear news and information and stories about the artist and what was going on during the specific week that we highlight. So be sure to join us at 9 o'clock Eastern Standard Time this Saturday on Toginet for the American Rock and Roll Countdown. The American Rock and Roll Countdown on Toginet. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. 
helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, White House Interpreter, The Art of Interpretation. And the author is Harry Opst, and Harry joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Harry. Hi, good morning, Steve. Good to have you with us. My goodness, what a career in interpretation, working with seven presidents, working with the U.S. Department of State. You have done it all. Now, why write the book? Well, Steve, nobody in the United States has ever written a book that explains the art of interpretation to the general reader. I wanted to fill that gap. Most Americans know what architects, lawyers, engineers, and physicians do, but interpreting remains a mystery to them. My second motivation was to add another historical perspective, an interpreter's perspective, to what is known about the five presidents I worked for most often, and those are Johnson, Nixon, Ford, Carter, and Reagan all coming up in my book. Well, when we talk about interpretation, being an interpreter, kind of give us a, a, paint a picture for us of how that would work in a room. What would be going on in, in a conversation between two heads of state who don't speak the same language? What would be the process? Well, the regular process, sometimes there are exceptions because one interpreter is sick or uh, some other problem, two parallel meetings where you have to split the interpreters. The normal process is that you have two interpreters with the two leaders. One who travels with the leader to the other country and one from the home country who works for the leader of his country. So in, in my case, I always worked for the president of the United States. But if there was a one-on-one -on -one with a German chancellor, an Austrian chancellor, whatever, then they would usually bring their own interpreter along. And uh, there are some good reasons for that. One is that even the best interpreters at the master level occasionally will make a mistake and the two interpreters monitor each other and can help each other out. The other reason is that at the highest level, any subject under the sun can come up, and you can't be ready uh, for all of them. So the interpreter gets to read the same briefing books that the president got for that meeting, and that has suggested subjects by the White House staff, by the Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, and so on. And he will refer to them or not, but most often he will. And the interpreter has read that book, so he is prepared. This is more than obviously just translating words to words. That's what makes this an art, because you have all kinds of body language and inflections and everything else that goes into the interpretation, right? Yeah, moreover, you have to have uh, the cultural knowledge of the country. Uh, you know, uh, the Germans don't know anything about American football, basically. And we know very little about soccer, which is their number one sport over there. So, uh, 
politicians and others very often throw sports expressions into the conversation. You know, the European interpreter may not know what it means when the American president says, well, on that issue, I think it's time to punt. Well, <laughs> yeah, the other interpreter just has a blank stare, you know, but the American interpreter would know what that means. And conversely, the, the, the German chancellor might say, well, I don't know if we really should tackle this. We are now in the 89th minute of the game. And... Uh, European interpreter would know a soccer game lasts 90 minutes. So that is the same as in our parlance, you know, ninth inning in baseball with two outs. So uh, the cultural knowledge of the other country is also very important, and of your own country, of course. Now, you've done this for over 30 years. You've been an interpreter, you've been a manager, you've been an instructor, you've worked with these presidents. Let's talk about some of the unique situations, some of the ones that you highlighted in a book. Just give us some examples of some just unique situations that you were confronted with, perhaps with, with one of the presidents. Well, the, uh, the problem you have is very rarely with the presidents. The only president we all had problems with was Nixon who was suspicious of everybody who looked down his nose at interpreters and many others. The problem is always with their advisors and mid-level people that have a say in the matter. So uh, when, for instance, when I went uh, with President Ford to Salzburg, Austria, to meet with President Sadat of Egypt uh, and with the Austrian Chancellor, uh, we had... Uh, first of all, we had an incident at the airport. Uh, I got there an hour ahead of time, and the trip coordinator for the White House, his name was Frank Orsomar, so I still remember, <laughs> he had put my microphone phones way to the left, uh, at least 30 feet over, and I was behind the loudspeakers, and it was pouring rain. And I said, Frank, I won't be able to hear what the president said. Oh, no, everything will be all right. Don't worry. I said, look, we have an hour. Let's rectify the situation. No, 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 no. We have it set up like this on purpose, and you just do the best you can from your position. Of course, I couldn't. I couldn't understand half of it. And when Ford got off the airplane, he stumbled and fell to the ground. And I couldn't see it. And the Austrian chancellor and his military aide with a nuclear briefcase helped him back on his feet. I couldn't see anything that was obstructed by the umbrellas of the welcoming party. So then our president starts his speech, and I can only hear half of the first sentence, but I hear something like, umble, umble, you know. And, uh, and he apologizes for something when Umble comes behind it. I say, what the hell can he apologize for? He's just arrived in Austria. What could he have done wrong? <laughs> <laughs> so I couldn't figure it out. And while I made notes on the other sentences and I turned this around in my head, I finally said, he probably said, I apologize for the rain tumbling down like that. That was an Umble sound. So that's what I said. So next morning, I pick up the local paper, and there are three photos side by side of the president falling on his face. And on top of it, the headline said, 
I apologize for stumbling into your country like this. <laughs> and below it said, the official interpreter of the president took no notice whatsoever of this remark. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So you can't win sometimes. And then the other problem on the same visit was we had a banquet in the evening. And, uh, and I was not allowed in the banquet hall to sit next to the president. I said to Frank, why is that? I need to be there. I don't need a seat at the table, but I have to be close to the president. No, no, the press is only allowed for the toasts, and the president, uh, um, the uh, Egyptian president, Sadat, and the Austrian chancellor will speak in English, we were told by the protocol people. I said, you can't listen to protocol people. The leaders can do what they want. Austrian television is here. You really think the chancellor would speak in English? when his whole nation is listening. Radio Cairo is here. Do you really think Sadat will speak in English and won't say something in Arabic and maybe in German because he speaks German? And uh, don't worry, don't worry, everything's okay. Well, make a long story short, uh, Kreisky spoke in German and Ford couldn't understand the word. Sadat started in Arabic and then switched to German and Ford couldn't understand the word and I was outside the room, not let in. And then Ford had to speak last, and he had no idea what the other two had said. He couldn't respond to their compliments or anything. So the problem is not with the president. The problem is almost always with his assistants. My goodness. You think common sense would have you right by the president's side everywhere. That's incredible. Well, you have some interesting views of the state of interpretation in the United States for in these situations. How do you rate the United States in its ability to keep training people and to be the very best interpreters we can be? Very poorly. Uh, the situation uh, with training interpreters in the United States is so bad that I've written a special chapter on it at the end of the book, and that chapter is sort of directed at the colleges and universities, but they don't respond anyhow. I've been running around the country for 13 years trying to inspire universities and colleges to open up and turn the training programs, and only one little program in South Carolina came out of my efforts. So I'm addressing in particular the business community and other people that rely on interpreters a lot, like judges in court uh, and uh, so on, Our companies that export, you know, the, the Europeans know how to export, the Japanese know how to export, and it all starts with the language. Knowing the language when you go into that country, if not, take reliable interpreters and translators along. We don't do that. It's costing us hundreds of billions in lost export earnings. And it also does other damage. For instance, if we go into a war like Iraq and Afghanistan, and uh, the uh, platoon leaders and officers and so on, nobody understands the language. If you don't have reliable interpreters with you, you will take extra casualties and you will inflict thousands more casualties on the civilian population. We learned this a little late in Iraq and then the... Uh, Defense Department finally opened up uh, the training program in California and sent more interpreters out there. But the lack of good interpreters in the United States does a lot of damage to many sectors of our society. Why do you think there's such a, a wall? Why is, there be, why is this being 
it's not being blocked, is it? Or I mean, it wouldn't seem seem like this would just be good business and good government. It is blocked in academia by the fact that academia trains umpteen thousands of theoretical linguists each year. They have positions for them. They, they have the money to train them. But then when they are finished training them, there's no need for them in society except for maybe 20% of them. So the theoretical linguists that can't get any jobs, uh, they then uh, try to make an academic career as administrators. And they wind up quite often as the heads of the language departments at universities and colleges, having not the foggiest notion what interpreting and translating is about, but doing everything, knowing everything about grammar and syntax and, and, and the little games that you can play with language and with words. And uh, they are the ones that are uh, the biggest obstacle. The second obstacle is that this country started out uh, in the first hundred years of its existence uh, without trained interpreters and translators. Those weren't the kind of people that came over with the pioneers. And you just had to find somebody who knew the Indian language or who knew French or who knew Spanish, and they functioned as interpreters. So our tradition is for many, many decades to work with untrained interpreters, and that tradition hasn't been broken to a large extent to this day. You were there with Reagan and Gorbachev. Give us some insights into that great meeting. Well, actually, I was by then the director of the Office of Language Services. I was organizing the language support. I was not interpreting. But this particular meeting, there's a series of meetings that started in November 1985 in Geneva, Switzerland, completely changed the map of the world. And, uh, and brought an end to the Cold War. And the interpreters that were usually in the one-on-ones, as we call them, when Gorbachev and Reagan were alone, for our side, Dmitry Zaretsnak, whom I helped to train myself when he was a rookie, and for, for the Soviet side, it was still the Soviet side in the beginning, not the Russian side, uh, Pavel Palaschenko, who was Gorbachev's interpreter, they had a very tough uh, chore ahead of them. And there was so much writing on, on every sentence, on every body language gesture and whatnot. They really had to be at the top of, of their uh, professional uh, knowledge and performance. And that's why I'm starting my introduction with those two interpreters and their role in performing during these very important meetings between Reagan and Gorbachev. I myself didn't interpret because I don't speak Russian anymore, though I did at one time way back when because I was stuck in communist East Germany. I had to take six hours of Russian every week at school. (laughs) Not good enough for interpreting. (laughs) Well, fascinating book, uh, great insights, great inside stories. You were interpreter for Richard Nixon, Gerald Ford, Jimmy Carter, uh, Ronald Reagan, Lyndon Johnson, and even spent some time with Clinton and George Bush Sr. So just a fantastic book. I would encourage everyone to obviously get a copy of this because it's Nothing like it in the whole world, wouldn't you agree? Well, 
nothing like it has been printed so far. So in, in that regard, it is unique. And uh, as I said, I wanted to combine two things in this book, uh, bring a new historical perspective on five of those presidents as they are seen from the interpreters, uh, with the interpreter's eyes, from inside the Oval Office and outside, and interweave that and those anecdotes and stories with enough other stuff that the general reader at the end of the book will know what interpretation is all about and the users of interpreters who cannot really often tell the difference in this country between reliable interpreting and bad interpreting of which there is too much. They will know when they've read this book whether they had a good interpreter or a bad one. Harry, do you have a website? Yes. What is that? It's ryob, R-Y-O-B, at erolds.com, E-R-O-L-S.com. And how do we get your book, Harry? <clears throat> well, the book is not, has just come out uh, a month ago. It's not yet in the bookstores, but uh, uh, it can be uh, bought on the Internet. There are several sellers, even in England already, I saw. Uh, let me name just three of them. Authorhouse.com plus bookstore, Authorhouse.com plus bookstore, Amazon.com, and BarnesandNoble.com. They all sell the book in the hardcover version, in paperback, and even as an e-book for all reading tablets like Kindle, Nook, and so on. Well, thank you, Harry. Thank you so much for being on Author Talk. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. That was Harry Opst. He is the author of his book, White House Interpreter, The Art of Interpretation.